So I am so glad you all came out because if we would have missed tonight, uh, we would have missed a lot. We're going to put a bow on Romans chapter 8. And again, we've only scratched the surface. That's not like pastor speak. Seriously, there are people that have preached 50 sermons on Romans chapter 8. There's a lot here. But tonight we're going to take one final look. And it's been a privilege really to walk through this. God has built my confidence and my trust in him and all that he's doing. And really this chapter is all about grace. And if you remember nothing, it's all about our security in God. It's very important because God wants us to live a Christian life where the base of all that we believe is freedom, that we're doing everything from the freedom he's already given us. And that's why it begins in verse 1 with no condemnation. And what does it end with in verse 35? No separation. These are the wonderful bookends of Romans chapter 8. There is no more condemnation. And the reason there's no more condemnation, verse 3 says, is because Jesus was condemned for us. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. God condemned him. When he said it was finished, he paid the penalty for you and for me that we might live a life of freedom. And that's why some of you were probably surprised when you read Romans chapter 8 that over and over again we see the Holy Spirit in this chapter. Because the Holy Spirit now is our down payment. It's now how we live the Christian life. Again, we live from freedom. And Dallas Willard coined a phrase, and it's remarkable, but it's so true. He said that grace, what you and I have experienced, remember we brought nothing into this, so we can't keep it. We never earned anything, so we're not going to hold on to it. What we've given to God, he's holding till the final day. But Dallas Willard said that grace isn't opposed to effort, it's just opposed to earning. So we're not earning God's favor, but there is some effort, right? There is a Holy Spirit that's leading us and guiding us, and there are certain things we're called to do. We're told to put off certain things and put on other things. I was reading a report the other day about Bible reading, and it was fascinating. It was saying, and you know, I don't want to... I don't want to say this is gospel truth, I'm just telling you what I read, but it was saying people that read the Bible four times a week are less likely to do all these different things that are damaging to them. If you read the Bible four times a week, there's like four major things that will go down in your life and a bunch of things that will rise, but here's the interesting part of the study. It also says that people that don't read the Bible at least four times a day, their lives almost look no different than non-Christians. That's remarkable. People that don't read scripture, and it makes sense, there's no renewing of the mind, there's no conviction of the heart, their lives ultimately don't look like even non-believers, and we don't make the decisions we need to make because we don't have the word inside of us. So there is effort, but we're not earning God's favor, we're living from his favor. And so we have this spirit who's our down payment and ever making intercession for us, and then we hit the crescendo last week, right? Romans 8, verse 28, that God is working what? All things for the good that those who love him are called by his name. And we found out that doesn't mean everything's going to be good in a Christian's life. Doesn't mean you're necessarily even going to live a better life than a non-Christian, according to this world scoreboard, right? Doesn't mean you're going to have more money and less problems now, you're going to have a better life, trust me, because God is with you. But it doesn't say you're going to have a grand and glorious life where everything works out. 
It just says there is God who is working all things for good. In other words, for us being conformed to the image of God and what eternity is going to look like, God is weaving this wonderful tapestry to bring us to an expected end where when we look at Jesus, he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Now, we traveled a few of these verses last time, but let's go back to verse 31, where Paul asks four questions. Now, if you read the New Testament in Paul's writings, he asked a lot of questions. Many of them are rhetorical. It's a wonderful gift, right? Ronald Reagan, I remember, would always answer a question with a question. Jesus does that. Well, Paul does it here. He has four questions, and the first one's in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, the fact that he would ask the question means there is something against us. The fact that he would say what can separate us means there is probably something or many things that can separate us. If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, I can think of somebody who's against us, and it's the answer to all four questions. Satan's against us. The devil. Yeah, in 2019, we still believe in the devil. The last time I checked, he's like a roaring lion going about looking for whom he can devour. Now, his bark's worse than his bite. We all know that, right? You all remember Rudolph? Remember the claymation Rudolph, the famous one that's on every year at Christmas, where the abominable snowman is chasing Rudolph and his friends, but Herbie wants to be a dentist, and he's, you know, he's an outcast elf because he wants to be a dentist, and so they go to the island of misfit toys. You remember what Herbie does to the abominable snowman? Takes his teeth out, right? So now this abominable snowman, he still has this roar, but he has no bite. That's Satan in the life of a believer. He's a roaring lion. He comes at us with every lie from the pit of hell. But there's nothing he can do against us. The Bible says we stand against him, right? That wonderful verse in Ephesians where we have the sword of the spirit, that's the word of God, we have the breastplate of righteousness, and so forth and so on. We don't go to battle with the devil, right? You know, there's not this big demonology book that we open up and, and fight the devil on his terms. No, we stand on the word of God. But he seeks whom he may devour. And by the way, he is the one that condemns us. He is the one who tells us that God's not for us. Did you ever had that thought before? Did you ever circumstances come in your life? Or the way you're living, you must think God can't be for me. I mean, if anybody knew who I was, they could never be for me. See, that's the beauty of faith. God already knows us. And he knows our proclivities. He knows what we do. And he still loves us. My wife loves me. There are things I do, like my clothes pile up on the chair, and she still loves me. You all never knew that till now, and you might not like me anymore. And if we room for a weekend, you probably wouldn't like me, because there's other things I do that are annoying, and so do you have those annoying things. And sometimes we think, God's not for me because... I did these things this week or this year or God knows what I'm like. God is for me. It's a life-transforming verse. Paul's second question, verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Satan does. 
I shared with you a few weeks ago, every time he speaks in Scripture, he's either slandering man to God or God to man. It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? Satan condemns. It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. And then verse 35, the famous question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Look at the first three words, tribulation, distress, and persecution. These were the things that tried to separate the early church and really believers for 2,000 years from the God that they loved. The early church was poor. It was Jewish. It was maligned. Later, when they spread out into Asia Minor and the Roman world, they were persecuted by the Romans. They were sent to the Colosseum. They were sent to their death. They were martyred. Um, not only the rank and file, this is by Paul's own account, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He said, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes, minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night, a day in the deep. In journeys often. In perils of water. In perils of robbers. In perils of my countrymen. I remember preaching this on a Sunday morning, and a girl from California said, Pastor Bob, what's that about those pearls? I'm like, excuse me? She said, you were talking about those pearls. I'm like, no, it's pearls. That's East Coast. <laughs> pearls of my countrymen, pearls of the Gentiles, pearls in the city, pearls in the wilderness, pearls in the sea, pearls among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and in nakedness. Anyone want to go in the ministry tonight? You want to sign up for seminary, ministry training? And he says, beside these other things, I have what comes on me every day. These daily problems, Paul said, these other things are just outliers. I kind of chuckle when I read that because Paul was in the ministry and experienced persecution and tribulation. Today, when we have guest speakers come to Sizzling Summer Retreats, they give us a long list. They need Perrier water and mints, and they need a queen bed with certain pillows. And I'm thinking, how far have we come in doing God's work? The early church was heavily persecuted. And there had to be days where they had wondered about the love of God about this Jesus who rose from the dead, when they looked at circumstances, when they looked at doing God's will and what they had to face, those circumstances had to tell them that God had separated himself from them. And life can get that way. I shared last time when we go through struggles and trials and we lose the people that we love and circumstances don't work out, there are these deconversion stories where people turn their back on God and there is a separation. And Paul said these things tend at times to speak out to us as if God isn't concerned. The next one is famine. The ancient world experienced famine quite often, especially in Rome. If it wasn't for Mark Antony making that uh, liaison with Cleopatra in Egypt, the Egyptians basically were the breadbasket of Rome at times 
when they went through famines. But I'm sure there were people saying, well, we're going through famines. How could there be a God that loves us? Nakedness is just to be you know, poor beyond belief. Pearl, we talked about. The sword, many of them died a martyr's death. For your sake we are killed all day long, and we're accounted as sheep for the slaughter. And I love verse 37. Paul said, yet in all these things, and he experienced them personally, he said, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I was meditating on that verse several days ago. And I thought the way life fleshes out, you either have two choices. You could be more than a conqueror, or you could be what society is teaching most Americans. You can be a victim. It's really popular today, right? I'm just a victim of my circumstances. I was at a conference one time where we did a genogram. Maybe you've done Ancestry.com. And so what you do is you go generations back, and it wasn't to find out where you came from. The idea was to go back and look who your family was. Now, it wasn't to go back and try and get all that healed. You know, I think God does that when you come to Christ. But the exercise was, was beautiful in this regard because when I, when I looked at my parents and I looked at uncles and I went back to grandparents, I started to realize everybody had it hard. Everybody had difficulties. Everybody had struggles. Everybody was doing the best they could. And so, you know, when you begin to look at life, you can go back and say, well, you know, this person screwed me up. And if it wasn't for this person, I could have done that. You could play that game all day long and be a victim. Or you could look back and say, well, God, for all that I came through, your grace was sufficient for me. And you could be a conqueror. In fact, Paul says you could be more than a conqueror. You could be more than a conqueror in your marriage. You could be more than a conqueror in your finances. You could be more than a conqueror in ministry. You could be more than a conqueror. In so many things. Why? Because we're smart or we arrived or we earned it? No. Because the God of grace walks beside us. And he walked beside Paul. And Paul was able to say in verse 38, For I am persuaded. A better translation, he said, I am confident. The Christian life is confidence in this. That neither death nor life. Here's an interesting one nor angels. And I thought angels were good guys, right? You have a guardian angel, or all the angels in the Bible seem to be like trying to get people on their way. I don't know if you know this, but Joseph Smith, who started Mormonism, claimed an angel appeared in his room with two golden tablets, and that was the beginning of Mormonism. I don't know if that really happened, but there are fallen angels called demons. Muhammad had the Quran spoken to him supposedly by an angel. So there's some form of distraction here or something that can move us away from the God. Paul said by angels. It's a very interesting word. Nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come. Now the things to come is for you and me. Paul didn't know what was coming. If he knew it was coming, he wouldn't believe it. But we have the ability to look back at the long arc of history of the church and to see that these verses have been true. The church started out poor and persecuted. 
It started out as a feeble group empowered by the Spirit of God with no power, no might, no strength. In 2,000 years, look at us. We're all here. The gospel's thriving. It's in every continent. It's in every country. When the church became legal in Rome, it began to grow. It began to grow by leaps and bounds, and then we went through the Middle Ages. Not much happened in the Middle Ages, but when the Enlightenment came, great things began to happen. Philosophers came along, and scientists came along, and many of them were Christian. Many of them weren't, but there were many that were Christian. The scientists like Kepler and Galileo and Copernicus and Newton were amazing men who loved God and loved what they were discovering. I don't know if you know this about Newton, but Newton wrote more about the Bible than he did about science. He loved scripture. And he would put the two together, and this is where faith and science agree. Newton said, gravity explains the motion of the planets, but it cannot explain who set the planets in motion. God knows all things and knows all that is or can be done. Church began to grow by leaps and bounds. But once materialism came, once naturalism came, once Darwin gave people an excuse that there is no God, there, there is no creator, all of a sudden philosophy began to take over and atheism became an option. And yet the church has had a struggle against all of these things as we come down to our age. We have atheists that are prominent in literature, and you can watch them on YouTube, and we know what's happening in our universities. There's principalities, and there's powers behind this. Can any of this separate us? No. Look at the long arc of history. The church has faced capitalism, communism, atheism, and everything else that's been thrown at it. And here we are, and we're thriving, and we love God. And Paul said, I'm convinced there is nothing that will ever separate us. Verse 39, not height or depth or any created thing shall ever separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is a love that will never let us go. There is a God who loves us more than we can imagine. He's for us. We're never going to be separated from him. And he ever lives to make intercession for us. Now, if we just stop there, you would never have the full picture of Romans 8. This is wonderful theology. This is, this is a sky-high view Paul's thrown at us. It's majestic. It's glorious. There's security. There's, there's these beautiful truths of all that God has done for us. But if we stopped right here, right now, we wouldn't have the whole picture. Because there were no chapter breaks, and the thought continues. And to understand all of chapter 8, Paul gives an illustration in chapter 9. Look what he says. He says, I tell you the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. I'm not making this up. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites or Jews to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers and from whom, at least according to the flesh, came Christ, who was over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. 
This is an insight into Paul's heart. A lot of us think Paul was this really smart guy and he was full of head knowledge. And you really get a peek into Paul's heart here. After explaining all these glories we have in Christ, Paul said, I would trade them all away. I would go to hell. I would be damned if the Jews could go to heaven, if they could be saved. Boy, that's a heart, isn't it? You talk about the heart of evangelism. Can you imagine if the heart of every church, every evangelist, every preacher, every Christian was that we would go to hell if people could be saved? Now we can't. Can you imagine the depths of what God might do if that was our heart? And so part, Paul brings up a people group now that become an illustration for us of all that we've been learning in Romans chapter 8. Paul's going to argue that this people group who came out of nowhere when God called Abraham, and Abraham was an idol worshiper, he had done nothing of himself. The scripture says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. He never earned God's favor. God selected this one people group, and Paul's going to argue, look at what he's done for them, and he'll do the same for you. Now remember when we started, we said that as we looked at these verses in Romans 8, there was this whole idea of God's sovereignty and then human responsibility. There was election and free will, and I shared that we could never make those kind of meet up. Man wants to live at one or the other. But I shared that both can be true, we'll just never understand it. But in the mind of God, they both exist. So what do you think Paul does here? In chapter 9, he argues for election. And if you rip chapter 10 out, you would be reformed. But if you read chapter 10 and rip chapter 9 out, you would be an Arminianist. You believe in free will. Paul is going to show us that both of these are true. Look at verse 6. But it is, not the word of, it is not as if the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are Israel. See if you can follow this. Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But it was in Isaac that your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise, at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah had also conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, right? It's not a matter of being a good boy or a little girl. That the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. And here's kind of the smoking gun as it is written. Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. Now, we don't have the time to get in and break that down. But look at verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? And the answer is certainly not. When Paul explains this, he's explaining that Israel was elected of no initiation of their own. God called them. Now, that's good news for you and me because God did the same to you. See, I love the basket now. I love to sit by my fire at night with a cup of coffee knowing that God called me and I'm the elect of God. That's a beautiful thing. 
Now, don't read in, right? God called me and he didn't call somebody else. Don't read that in, even though it kind of looks like that's what he's saying. But it prompts Paul, because he knows what you're going to ask, to say, is God unfair? Why would God do this? Now, when we get in the idea, is God fair, we're in strange territory, right? Can I explain fairness to you? In the day that you sin, you shall surely die. Okay? That's fair. So if we want fair, we're all gone. Okay? The fact that we're here, the fact that God saved us, the fact that we understand grace is overwhelming. But please understand this. God is God. And he can do whatever he wants. Paul said unfair? No, it's not unfair in the, the mind of God. Certainly not. Now, he goes on with more illustrations. For he said to Moses, I'll have mercy on whomever I'll have mercy and compassion on whoever I will have compassion. So basically, God's saying, I can do whatever I want. So it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. You're not a Christian because you showed up at a Bible study one day or... You know, you accepted Christ. The, the argument here, and I'm just following the argument, is this is all of God's election. For the scripture says this of Pharaoh. This is if you're looking for another illustration. For this very purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and then he hardens who he wills. You will then say... Why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? Now the question is, okay, if people don't believe, then, then, then God can't find fault in them. They were purposed for this. But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Remember Job tried that? Job came to God with his yellow legal pad, right? God, why'd you do this? How do you do this? And God said, look, sit down, Job. And he began to talk to him about the wild animals and where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth and where were you when, you know, when I created these animals and it's at, at the end, Job's undone. Who are you, verse 20, to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay and from the same lump to make one vessel for honor? And another for dishonor, doesn't he? God can do that, can he? Yeah. What if God, now it's not saying God did this. Look at verse 22. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but of also the Gentiles. Verse 25, another illustration from Hosea. Verse 27, he's going to quote Isaiah. And he ends basically by saying of Israel that they were elected. And you read this whole chapter, and you think, oh my gosh, God has chosen some and has not chosen others. And whatever you think, there is this doctrine of election. 
But now look at the first verse of chapter 10. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Why in the world would Paul pray for something that was impossible? In other words, if God chooses some and doesn't choose others, why would Paul pray? And some people say, well, because he wants to get aligned with what God is doing. No, that's a bad answer. See, Paul flips a switch here and says, I'm praying that all Israel might get saved. What Paul's saying here is every person has an opportunity. There is human responsibility. Two things can be true. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, are seeking to establish their own righteousness. They just haven't submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does these things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith which we preach. Here's a verse you all know, verse 9. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For verse 11 says, for the scripture says, whoever believes in him, he will not put to shame. It doesn't say if the elect believe in him. Paul says whoever believes in him. So here's what he's doing. He's told us we are more than conquerors and the one who loved us. That all things are working for our good. There's no condemnation. There's no separation. And Paul said, if you don't believe me, look back thousands of years to a group of people that God gave the same promises, the same adoption. They became heirs. And look at how God dealt with them. God has kept them. He has dealt with them with grace. They are not separated from him. When's the last time you saw an Amalekite, an Amorite, a Perizzite? Anybody see one lately on the news? The UN, does the UN have a placard there, Amorites? But there is one for Israel, last time I looked. See, if God kept them, he'll keep you. See, this is the great promise we have. We have the spirit as a down payment, but we can look at how God deals with another people group. And the good news about this people group is God elected them chose them just like he elected and chose you but whosoever would confess Jesus Christ would be saved two things could be true these are parallel truths that we will never solve this side of heaven last night I was watching a TED talk by my friend Richard Dawkins the avowed atheist it was called the queerness of the universe Queer is a British word for strange, right? And Richard Dawkins is brilliant. He's talking about things I don't understand, but they sound really cool. 
like multiverses and parallel universes. And he's talking about how a rock is really empty space because it's filled with atoms that are empty. But if you put your toe against it, it's hard. And he's looking at what he calls the queerness of the universe. And what he was basically trying to say is that the universe is so complicated that even people at Oxford and Cambridge and Stephen Hawking, that nobody can figure it out. It is way beyond our capacity. And basically what he's saying is it would take a superior intelligence than what we have on earth to understand and unlock the mysteries of the universe. And I'm watching this and I'm like, thank you, Richard Dawkins, for building my faith. Because for the ages to come, we're going to discover of his grace and God's going to unlock the secrets of the universe. And of course we can't understand. We're looking at a glass dimly. And I'm amazed that God has even allowed man to go this far to unlock some of the things that we've already seen. But that we are so far from understanding how all this works. And trying to put these truths together is foolish on our part. Whoever believes on him, he will never put to shame. Verse 12, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is rich over both that he has called. Now very quickly, and we'll end here, look at chapter 11. I say then, has God cast away his people? Has God cast away Israel? No, certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people who he foreknew. Or do you not know the scripture says of Elijah how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and tore down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life? But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then at this present time there is a remnant, look at this phrase, according to the election of grace. And if by grace the no longer of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace, otherwise work is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks. But the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Look at verse 11. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Verse 21. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and the severity of God on those who fell, severity, but toward you, goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you will be cut off. Now, we've been talking about no separation. What he's arguing for here is the Jews have been cut off that we might be grafted in. He's giving us a hypothetical illustration here. Verse 23, and they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? And then look at verse 34, and this is a great place to end. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who 
has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? Here's what Paul's saying. God can do whatever he wants. But here's the good news. There are dictators who rule that way. And if they're benevolent, you make out, right? If they're not, you lose. But the God who can do whatever he wants has set up a universe of laws and rules that work so that we understand them. And the God who set up this system is a God of character. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the God that doesn't change. He's the God that cannot lie. The God who can do whatever he pleases is holy and righteous and never changing. It's a beautiful thing. What that means is what he's promised, he will deliver. And the way we understand that is look what he's already done with Israel. And now look at what he's doing with the church. See, we can look back now on a church age that they had no way to look at. In the midst of persecution and famine and sword, they had nothing else to look at. We do. And we look at the long arc of history, and God has been faithful. And the church is here, and we're victorious, and we are more than conquerors. If you get anything out of Romans 8 and now 9, 10, and 11, you know what you were signed up for tonight, right? It's this. We get to live from freedom. See, we're not earning our freedom. We're not earning our salvation. We're not earning our keeping. We are living from it. We are confident. We are free from all these things to live victorious lives in Jesus Christ. It's all about grace. That's what brought us all into this. It's what made us one. It's what's going to keep us until the final day. And nothing's ever going to separate us. We might get separated in this life, and many have. We might go through great difficulties, and so many have. But in the book of Revelation, when we stand around the throne, every tribe, every kindred, every tongue, every knee will bow, and everyone will confess. Even Voltaire and the philosophers and those who are against God will confess that Jesus was Lord. And we will finally understand God put all these things together because he loves us. The calculus is if he gave us his only son, how will he withhold any good thing? Who condemns us? Satan. Who tells us God's not for us? Satan. What does God do? Christmas. The virgin conceives and he gives us his only son. If he didn't withhold that, he's not going to withhold anything else. That's the security we have. That's what we take to the bank.